Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we will hear from one of the leading investment firms with perhaps the most dedicated followers and investors. We will also hear what's new with the firm, including their recent entry into exchange-traded funds. Our guest is Bryce Scaff, co-head of the Global Client Group at Dimensional Fund Advisors, otherwise known as DFA. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And Bryce, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to the conversation, Rusty. Awesome. Well, as we get started, we have a tradition at The Weighing Machine, and the first question is the toughest question, and that is we do need a walk-up song. We need to imagine we can hear a song that is accompanying you to the stage here. So what is Bryce Gaff's walk-up song for The Weighing Machine? Well, most in the advisor community be surprised because they're probably used to seeing me in a suit coat or something like that, but I'm actually a big reggae music fan, big island music fan, and one of the songs I love is, I virtually guarantee nobody listening knows of this song, but it's called Good Vibes by the artist Ja Boy, featuring Conqueror and Samuels. So try and spell it. I challenge you. But a great song, happy song, really gets you in the mood. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Well, a couple of things. My analysts will have to track down that song. So we do have a playlist on Spotify. And obviously at OPS, we're big fans of diversification. I think that's our first reggae song in the playlist. So that's awesome. Ah, that's great. Glad to add to it. Good. good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's learn a little about you. So Let's see, you've been at DFA for kind of a short time, or only a mere 25 years or so. So tell us about your background and your position today. Yeah, just a wee puppet dimensional in year 25, huh? Uh, yeah, my <laughs> yeah, background right. quickly. Yeah. Uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm a California kid. My wife is from Hawaii, so we're both kind of beach people, avid outdoors folks. Spent a lot of time in and around the ocean, lots of ocean sports, surfing, outrigger paddling, all that kind of stuff. Outside of the office, my wife and I are founding partners of a marine conservation nonprofit called the Surf Conservation Partnership. So we spend a decent amount of time trying to do some good out there in the world beyond the good that we're doing here professionally. Yeah, on the professional side, it's, as I say, you know, quarter of a century here at Dimensional. Started in 1998, a different, smaller version of where we are today. It's been an incredible journey, lots of learning opportunities. I mean, this is a place, as I'm sure we'll kind of dive in, but full of really bright people, intellectually curious people, some of the giants in the field that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to work around. So, you know, my life's work has really, to this point, been about helping advisors deliver great experiences to investors and certainly seems to be a, no shortage of opportunity to do that in the future. Awesome. Well, before we dive into more about DFA, um, as you mentioned, you are a founding partner of the Surf Conservation Partnership. So that's really cool. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes. And so obviously you must surf. I do. I'm guessing. Yep. Great. Yeah. And so I yeah. have a question. So we're going to mention a lot of rock star names for industry coming up. But of course, I got to know if you know this person. Do you know Laird Hamilton? Know him personally or know of him? Yeah, personally. No, I don't know him personally. I have been in the, <laughs> I have been in the water surfing 
with Laird, but I was not there with him. I don't know him personally, but I used to spend some time up in the North Shore of Kauai, and I've seen him surf some just amazing, amazing waves real time. See, that's cool enough. I'm glad I asked. I mean, that was already way cool. So I'm a big follower of his. <laughs> I'm not really a surfer, but you know, I read his books, buy his products, man. I do the XBT stuff and all that. And one of my goals is to go to one of his retreats. So anyway, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, you know, those, those retreats look pretty cool. But anyway, let's dive into DFA. And it is a great story. So really, like when, how did it start? I mean, the founders again at DFA is really a star-studded list of names. Yeah, I think the, the founding of Dimensional actually goes back quite a bit before the firm started. The firm did start in, call it technically late 1980, but the first actual portfolio launched in 1981. But this is an organization really built on a set of ideas. And these ideas essentially disrupted an entire industry when they came about. But the ideas were, again, decades prior to the actual founding of the firm. If you go back even farther, go back to the early 1900s, and this idea of investment expertise with professional managers taking a basket of securities and you know, basically the expectation was I can outperform something, I can do better than an investor could do on his or her own. Some work came out in the 1960s that debunked that. Index funds sort of came out not too long after that to be a solve for some of those issues that we were seeing with professional money managers and the notion that stock picking and market timing and sector rotating, those sorts of things, basically looking into a crystal ball actually made sense. The, the data seemed pretty damning on that one. The set of ideas on which the firm was based came out of the academic halls, really of the University of Chicago. And the set of ideas really were anathema to how most of the investment industry and investors at large collectively operated and believed. As you suggested, there were some amazing people in and around those set of ideas. Lots of them actually ended up being Nobel Prize winners. But the set of ideas is really anchored on a foundational concept that competitive public markets do a really good job of processing information and setting prices fairly. Now, what's the implication of that? It's simply that it's really hard to find evidence that you can do better than the market itself. In other words, that you could somehow identify mispricings ahead of time. Stocks are overvalued or undervalued. And that had some pretty far-reaching implications about the best way to build reliable portfolios for investors. Nice. Well, let's dive into that philosophy a little bit more. And, you know, I think a lot of people just simply think that DFA is a value shop. They just simply, you know, just look at less expensive stocks. But DFA actually brings in other investment factors. Could we touch upon that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned that the evidence was, didn't look that favorably with the conventional active management community. Yeah. There are a couple of ways to think about that and why we want to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Dimensional has always been an organization. This will get to your question on the different factors we look at and how we're constantly tweaking and innovating and trying to improve portfolios. But we're sort of built on this notion that we're actually here to serve investors. Okay. Now, the reason that we work with advisors is because we have a very strong belief that advisors are a linchpin in the process. We believe that advisors do a really good job increasing the odds of success for investors. Mm -hmm. Now, advisors have a responsibility and the best way to run a business is to set expectations properly and deliver on expectations. Part of the expectations advisors set for clients is expectations about what to expect from markets, from their financial experience, from their investment experience. So when they go out there and select professional managers to help them do that, they have an expectation of managers that they deliver what they say they're going to deliver. Now, there's a lot of work that's been done on this topic. I'll give you a couple anecdotal pieces that maybe listeners would appreciate hearing. So. Yeah. The reason why I say expectations are failed is 
if you look at the industry, across the industry in the US, if we look back and say how many mutual funds, for example, existed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, how many of them do two things? They survive, number one. That's de minimis requirement to fulfill expectations for an advisor using a fund. How many of them survive? And then really, it's how many of them actually outperform the benchmark, which is the value out. That's what they're marketing. So the unfortunate result is if you go back and look at the funds 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, somewhere between 15 and 25% of funds actually survive and beat their benchmark, right? So 75 to 85% of the funds back at those, depending on the period of time you started, don't exist and didn't beat their benchmark. That's failing expectations. So you asked a little bit about dimensional. Is there a different experience? So for dimensional, that we test those same numbers of all the dimensional funds that existed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, how many are still in play, they exist, and beat their benchmark. So that's somewhere between 80 and 90%. So there's a very different experience for investors and advisors, and we feel very strongly about the responsibility to set proper expectations and deliver on those expectations. So the question that you're asking now, basically on the types of variables in the markets, the things that can explain excess returns or expected returns, what beyond value is there, and does that increase the robustness of portfolios, does that increase the likelihood that you'll deliver on those expectations? So happy to talk about that. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm glad you went back on that because, I mean, I firmly believe that really sort of the essence of investment management in, quite frankly, investment counseling is really about the expectations, as you said. So obviously, advisors do have to set those expectations and investment managers have to make sure that they are managing a portfolio that meets expectations as well. So that was was a huge part to go back on. Well, so really some of the investment factors of DFA, when I talk to a lot of people don't really know the DFA story, they just simply think the DFA is is a value shop. So I did have a couple of questions related to that. One was, obviously, there are other factors that DFA brings in, so I'd like to know that. But then secondly, of course, I mean, obviously, value is still an important driver of returns for DFA portfolios. Is value investing back? So I guess question number one, like what other factors does DFA bring in? So I'm aware that a lot of advisors, investors at large institutions know us as a, a value shop or a small cap value shop. And that's probably just a result of where our heritage was. The first portfolio that we started in 1981 was a small cap portfolio. And let me just go back to that for a second, because I think the evolutionary process of academic work and dimensional helped to explain where we are now and probably where we're going as an industry and for sure for us as an organization. The small cap fund that Dimensional started in 1981 was actually, it was a very simple premise. It was the founders of the firm saw that large institutions, essentially all they had was large cap companies, S&P 500 type exposure. And they really didn't have any small cap exposure. Pretty simple theory would say, diversification suggests that you should have some small cap exposure in your portfolio. Very simple. Now, serendipity all over the history of Dimensional, where our roots are in our DNA, our ability to actually attach onto a lot of this academic work. But coincidentally, at the University of Chicago, there was a dissertation being written that actually looked at the small returns of small cap stocks over large cap stocks, which essentially said the historical returns of small cap stocks are meaningfully larger in a statistically robust way than large cap returns. So we had this concept of it makes sense to diversify large cap stocks with small cap stocks. And oh, by the way, small cap stocks seem to have a higher, at least in a historical sense, a higher return than large cap stocks. That's the way the firm got started. And at that time, we were only working with large institutions as clients. In the late 80s, a gentleman by the name of Dan Wheeler, who was a fee-only financial advisor in Northern California, came along and said, I'd really like to 
use this solutions with my clients, my end investors. And through a series of conversations, an agreement was struck. As long as there was a long-term focus, no hot money in the portfolios to help really maintain the structure of those portfolios and allow us to trade them really well. Now, let me just jump ahead now to the value factor that I think people know us for and have known us for for a while. Where did that work come out of? It came out of some seminal work by two gentlemen, Eugene Fama and Ken French. And they released a paper called The Cross-Section of Expected Stock Returns in 1993. And effectively what that paper did was it demonstrated, highlighted three areas that seemed to be sources of or drivers of expected returns. Okay, and one of those was value versus growth. The three areas were stocks versus bonds, small companies versus large companies, and value stocks versus growth stocks. And so what they shared with the industry was that if we can figure out how to sort on these variables accordingly, we can explain to a pretty large extent the behavior of portfolios and in turn the expected behavior of portfolios through time. So that's why that paper was really, really important. And what you saw was dimensional, as we've done from our histories, take really robust academic work, distill it into something that we can use in real life portfolios. So we were really the first systematic value manager out there, in large part driven by the academic work in that paper. Now, Rusty, you asked the question, we're doing a lot more than that. And you're absolutely right. When we talk about how we expand and continue to add value through time, I think there's a really important concept for listeners to keep in mind, whether you're a client of Dimensional or you're looking at other managers or you're actually looking at, at financial research out there from the academic community. Modeling is an interesting objective. The goal of any model of a complex system, and by the way, public markets are complex systems, is to distill it down to the fewest number of variables that have the maximum amount of explanatory power. That sometimes gets lost. So sometimes you'll see lots of these really complex models with 20 variables and they suggest it explains better than the one that has three or four or five. And when in reality, what's really being done in there is lots of redundancy. So the increasing amount of complexity with lots of redundant variables and no added benefit. Now that doesn't mean that we can't continue or there hasn't been some advancements since that 1993 research. There absolutely have been. I'll give you an example, which is work on profitability. Stocks that have, if you hold book value in price constant and you vary the levels of profitability, companies that have high expected profitability have higher expected turns than companies that have low expected profitability. And this is where expected profitability is closely related. We found a variable where expected profitability is closely related to a historical measure of profitability that we can observe. So that allows us to sort portfolios a little bit and create differences in expected returns. So really what you have now is a mosaic of variables driven by, yes, academic work, and certainly driven by folks at Dimensional where you have a very heavy research department, lots of PhDs, a lot of this has come in house, a lot of academic type work now being done in house at Dimensional. Says, so look, we can explain a lot of the behavior of portfolios by a simple mosaic, if you will, or simple model. To what extent do investors have stocks versus bonds, small cap companies versus large companies, value companies versus growth companies, high relative profitability versus low relative profitability, long-term versus short-term on the bond side, and low credit versus high credit. Like if you can figure out how to develop an allocation along those lines and trust that the manager has a systematic approach such that they're delivering what you expect them to deliver on those lines, you actually can end up developing a relationship with an investor where you can align expectations with their journey. Yeah. So good. I mean, you've obviously told this story a few times before. It's so good. I just love hearing it. The systematic value approach, 
you know, how the, everything is built, how the portfolios are managed, really like it. So a big question I'm getting these days, and I'm sure you're getting it too, is the question about value investing. And is it finally back? It is, you know, it has significantly outperformed this year and over the last year, almost approximately 30%, depending on the benchmark you're looking at, but it's still underperformed over three, five, and 10 years. Do you think that value can continue to outperform? Before I answer the question, you probably know what my answer is going to be, but before I answer the question, <laughs> I actually want to come back to first order principle yeah. and come back to where do we think value, the value premium, the value expected outperformance, where does that even come from? And when you think about any premium, whether it's stock versus bonds, small versus large, value versus growth, a premium is kind of the intersection between price and discount rate. In other words, something that has a low price relative to something else, relative to its shares outstanding or relative to its earnings or its book value or its cash flow, they try to get at the same thing. And it's really a discount rate phenomena. The extent that discount rate is any form connected to risk. In other words, we as investors give high discount rates to securities that we think are riskier, then risk must somehow be related to expected returns. They're all sort of connected there. That's the first order principle to keep in mind. So if you believe that value stocks have higher discount rates than growth stocks, and perhaps a large part of that discount rate is connected to the risk of value stocks versus growth stocks, then the only thing that would inspire investors to invest in value stocks is higher expected returns. That has to be true. So if we can agree on that definition, then every single day, despite what we've observed yesterday, last month, last year, last five years, last 10 years, every single day I expect a value premium over growth. I expect higher value returns than growth returns every single day at every instant. So now let's take a little bit of a history lesson that goes directly to the heart of your question. And why are people asking the question? And they are. We have just gone through the worst, well, not just, leading up to the prior year, the worst historical performance of value stocks versus growth stocks. Okay, And it unfortunately coincided with all sorts of other things. Remember a pandemic and social unrest and all sorts of things going on out there. But leading up to 2020, say leading up to June of 2020, for example, the three-year return of U.S. value versus U.S. growth was negative 21.2%, the worst in history, in the history we have since going back all the way to 1920s. So there's reason for people to ask these questions. And another way I think about the issue is, if I just look back at the last five years, so last five years from June 2017 to June 2022, the return on value stocks was 9%, the return on growth stocks was about 14%. Okay, so you might say, oh, well, that's, that should inform my expectations. Growth stocks outperform value stocks. Now, the 96 years ending June 2020, so go from the last five years to the last 96 years ending June 2022, value stocks returned somewhere on the order of 13%, growth stocks 9.8%. It was actually 12.7 and 9.8. So now, let me just recap here. The 96 years of data, value stocks performed 12.7%. The last five years, 9%. For 96 years, growth stocks in the U.S., 9.8%. For the last five years, 13.9%. So people talk a lot about value underperformance. But the way I think about these, it's actually growth outperformance relative to historical standards. So this is what people miss a lot of the times. Investing is not about what just happened. It is definitionally, inherently undivorceable from the future. It is, what do I expect to happen from this point forward? And while I'm not going to guarantee everything, if I ask people the question, I'll give you two assets, one that has far exceeded its long run average, and one that has far underperformed its long run average, and one that is 
rooted in theory, well-supported theory that has higher expected returns, which one do you expect to do better through time going forward? Excellent. Very good points. I've made that argument myself when people have talked about value underperformance, but actually is pretty much performed okay. Again, as you said, it's the growth stocks have had a massive expansion in their valuation. So really good stuff. Well, let's talk about, so again, DFA, again, you've talked about always getting better, always enhancing, always progressing. And something that DFA has recently done is they've introduced exchange-traded funds. In addition to their mutual funds and the SMAs, the separate accounts they've had. What is the story to this important introduction? The good news about Dimensional is if you want to understand the rationale for why we do what we do, let's go back to the community that we serve. We're very closely connected to the advisor community. So I can answer that question very easily. Why we did what we did is because we got the feedback from the advisor community that they would really like us to have an ETF wrapper to the extent that we can bring the full weight of what Dimensional has done for decades in commingo funds, in mutual funds in the US, to the extent that we can do that in the ETF structure, we would like you to do it. Now, the reason why I say that disclaimer in an ETF structure is a really important one because it gets the heart at why we waited until 2020 to actually launch. Before we launched, basically the industry was dominated by index funds, right? I mean, 95% plus of the ETF marketplace in terms of assets was index funds. It was almost synonymous, ETFs, index funds, just a different wrapper than the mutual funds. And what's interesting is our mutual funds before we had ETFs already had a big advantage over indexing. Because we didn't have perfect tracking of a third-party index as our investment objective, we had some pretty major advantages. We could design investment objectives, portfolio construction methodologies and implementations that weren't so hamstrung by that rigid process of indexing. So theoretically, we could take all the good stuff about indexing and keep it and take the biggest disadvantage, which was the inability to beat a benchmark and actually capture that as well. So we already had a great advantage. Now, there was still one slight wrinkle that ETFs had that mutual funds may not have had, which was the long-term capital gains treatment. Now, interestingly, we actually used to compare our tax-managed mutual funds versus ETFs, and, and there was really no compelling advantage on the tax impact side of ETFs versus their mutual funds. So we thought, gosh, if we ever got into a place where we could manage ETFs, we'll win on every front, right? So in September of 2019, the ETF Rule 6C-11, which was known as the ETF Rule, came out. And as soon as that came out, Dimensional sprung into action because that was what we need. That was the rule that opened the door for Dimensional to do what we do. Because remember, we're not an index fund company. We're a systematic investment company. I like to call us a strategic active or strategic alpha, right? Keeping everything that's good about indexing, diversification, transparency, rules-based, tax efficiency, lower turnover, all those things that you want and keep them but the opportunity to outperform because we're not hamstrung by that third-party index and trading as rigidly as an index fund has to do. The same is true in an ETF format. So what the ETF allowed for, among other things, is custom baskets, which is what we've been doing in mutual funds for decades, which is not having a tremendous sense of rigidity on how we trade in the portfolio, having a layer of flexibility that affords us to differentiate ourselves and trade more efficiently than an index fund actually could. So when that door opened, we immediately went, sprung into action, had a committee ready to go, filed for the first three new ETFs in the summer of 2020, launched them later that year. And we are now the number one active ETF manager out there. I think we're number eight or nine in total ETF assets with over 60 billion at this point. You know, I think we've had, since we launched in uh, late 2020, 20 billion in net inflows across our ETF lineup. So it's just been 
a really amazing story and one for which we're incredibly grateful. That is amazing. Really incredible stats. Okay, so related to the introduction of individual ETFs, of course, Dimensional has also recently introduced ETF models, so models of ETFs. So again, tell us kind of the story and the motivations behind them and why they are different in the ETF strategist space. Yeah, we are really excited that we're at the place where we can actually offer ETF models. And we're there because we've got now got 24 ETFs in the market, four more on the way to launch before the end of the year. And I can say this because they're publicly known, they're sustainability ETFs. So you'll have 24 ETFs. The four coming out are US developed markets, emerging markets, and global bond sustainability strategies. So now we've got this suite of ETFs, lots of arrows in the quiver, if you will, from which we can build various types, various iterations of models. So let's just level set on why is a model even an interesting option for an advisor to use out there in the marketplace. And we've been working with advisors in a very, very deliberate, focused way for over 30 years now. So we get the community pretty well. We're thankful that we're allowed in their businesses in terms of collaborating, really understanding what's driving their businesses, their objectives, those sorts of things. We have every interest in helping advisors build thriving businesses. We don't have an advice operation at Dimensional. And let me say that again. We don't have an advice operation at Dimensional. We don't have a function that's going out and competing with advisors. We are anchored in this notion that if we can provide good services to advisors, both in the investment solution side and otherwise, they'll go out and build wonderful businesses and help more investors out there. So in order to build and maintain thriving businesses, efficiency and efficacy is really, really important for them. And what we've heard back from the advisor community and certainly have observed in their actions is model portfolios are becoming a more and more important way of scaling their time. Because I think what advisors have learned is they can satisfy a large part of their client base if they have sufficient number of models that those clients can slot into and fulfill their financial plan, right? Because advice is all about robust discovery, designing a financial plan, delivering a solution that actually is informed by the plan and where the expectations are well aligned in terms of what actually happens in that plan. So if we can develop these models that help them do just that, you know, design a financial plan because you know this much about a client, they should be in a 60-40, well-diversified model portfolio. We want to make that a really, really easy option for them to do so that they can spend their time on other super important tasks like you know, coaching the clients, doing added discovery, working on estate issues, broader wealth management issues, lots of companies now doing some tax work for clients. Anytime there's an important decision in someone's life, that's a significant amount of time an advisor needs to dedicate. And I also want to underscore the ability for them to go out and get new clients. Our goal at Dimensional is ultimately is to help more investors all over the world have a better experience. So we want advisors, great advisors, to get new clients. And we think this is a great opportunity to do that. So these models, as I said before, our Dimensional ETF models sit at this really cool intersection of efficiency and efficacy. Because in the end, they got to work, right? They've got to actually deliver on expectations. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So again, Dimensional does not just create a great portfolios that basically can match expectations how they perform, but also Dimensional does a great job in providing materials. And I remember visiting Santa Monica in the late 90s on a due diligence trip, and I remember getting this big, thick book of goodies. I just love that stuff. I still love that stuff. But anyway, recently I noticed there was kind of this short piece on the DFA site, and I just thought that was a great thing. And I just want you to expand on it because I think it's one of these kind of little stories I can hear a lot of financial advisors using after they hear it explained. But anyway, the short article was basically comparing short-term market conditions to the weather. 
but we don't invest based off weather conditions. Do you know that piece I'm talking about? Is so good you expand yeah. on that? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And you know, this is a, another example of as an industry, we default to complexity. When in reality, it's often the simplest of concepts that make the biggest impact on investors. So here's this analogy that you're referring to. Lots of people move to sunny climates. But those people, they know they don't go there expecting a sunny day every day. You expect that in general, you'll receive a sunny climate over time. The same is true for stocks, right? We invest because we expect to be rewarded through time, regardless of what your experience is going to be on any given day. That's really it. And so, you know, I can bring that example to life. My in-laws, my wife's folks, they, she was raised in Hawaii and they lived there for 30 odd years. And then when they were ready to move on from Hawaii, they wanted to find a sunny location. And they looked all around, they moved to, they ended up moving to Reno. And when I asked them years ago why they did that, they said, because Reno has 300 days of sun. Now, I know they didn't move there expecting precisely 300 days of sun, maybe 271 year, maybe 330 another year. The general climate is what they were going to see. Yeah. I think that's such a great example. I mean, it's so simple and so obvious. And I don't know why I've never thought of it myself, but I will be using it moving forward. Hey, so on that last point, again, Dimensional puts out a lot of great information for advisors and investors. How can listeners access that? We have lots of different levels of material access. So for anybody, whether it's an advisor or a retail investor, we do have a public website. And even on that public website, dimensional.com, there are heaps of really cool insights and content and articles and you know simple one-pagers, examples, things like that. Also, if you're not linked to our LinkedIn feed, we put a ton of really cool content and anecdotes on that LinkedIn feed. Matter of fact, I think that weather story, Rusty, was actually came through our LinkedIn feed as well. So lots of the things that are on the blog get posted there. The next layer is our client site for financial professionals. That opens up a whole new world. We can just isolate the financial professional. There is a slew of really cool, interesting content for you. That site is my.dimensional.com. For folks that are clients of Dimensional, whether it's through our mutual funds or ETFs or our newly launched SMA platform, there is investment data, analytics, insights across not just products, but academic work as well. Portfolio construction and analytics tools, several variations of that. Lots of communication resources, training and development programs for you and your teams as an advisor. Lots of practice management resources as well. We do a couple of really large scale studies of the advisor community and actually of the investor community as well. So we have podcasts and videos and all kinds of stuff up there. So if you're not familiar with it, you know, please go to the site. Somebody will get back in touch with you. We'd love to guide you through all the, all the resources there. Again, it goes back to what I said before. We have every incentive to help great advisors digest all this information and in turn, turn around and do wonderful work for the investor. Yeah. It's great stuff. Speaking of great stuff, we've got five more questions and it's really oh like five, five more questions. These are kind of our standard closing questions. So it'd be kind of fun to get your take on it. So first of all, and I love this question and I think you're going to have a great perspective on it, is really talking about financial advisors because you've worked with so many over the years. So when you're looking at financial advisors, what attributes or what qualities do the best financial advisors or wealth managers have in your opinion? Yeah. Well, first, let me tell you, I mean, I have a financial advisor, which is often surprising to people because I've been doing this for a long time. I don't necessarily need help investing. I'm 100% of my liquid assets are in dimensional funds. So I don't really need someone to explain to me how those things work. But my wife and I are incredibly appreciative of the work that we get to do with a financial advisor. They help us with myriad issues that 
come along with life's complexities. The journey is long and windy and volatile, as we all know. There are meaningful financial decisions and planning issues you want to work through full time. That consultation is invaluable, in our opinion. Yeah. So when it comes to what we were looking for, right, we interviewed a few and thankfully had access to lots of great advisors. There were several things that I think really mattered. A genuine demonstration that they care for the client. The client is first and foremost, the most important person in their ecosystem. In understanding that growth and profits, like we want our advisor to have a really healthy, successful business. That's a byproduct of delivering a wonderful client experience. That will come. The client has to come first. And we always wanted to feel that from the advisor. The best advisors, whether it's the one that we work with as far as working with thousands over the years that I can tell are those that are intellectually curious as well. They just don't take the easy way out. They won't settle for, I'm doing the same thing today because I did it that way five years ago or 10 years ago. They're always in search of a better answer. That's the responsibility they have to their clients. And there's a humility in that, knowing they don't have all the answers and seeking out collaboration with others that might help them kind of digest, assess, calibrate, and come up with a way. And by the way, the conclusion might be, yeah, what I was doing yesterday is great. That's as good as I can do. I'll keep on doing that today. But at least I did the work. That's all. I'm accountable to clients to do the work. And by the way, if they do find a better way, that they feel compelled to do it that way, even if it's harder to switch. That is a big one for me and for, for the community. It kind of leads to, I guess, one other one, which is they don't do things for appearance as much for substance. You know, we all know advisors out there, they're marketing machines. And it's, it's all about maybe a bit of pandering, maybe a bit of I do this as clients want it, even though I know it's not in their best interest. But you know, the really great advisors are doing the right thing because they understand the truth and they're willing to embrace the truth and give that dose of reality to the investor. That's why they were hired. Right. Yeah. And then step. discipline, I'd say is the last one, Rusty. Yeah. Discipline. I would expect to see an advisor have at a minimum the same, but ideally a lot more discipline than what they would expect from their own client. Yeah. I think those last two points are great because if you think about it, you know, a really famous study in our industry, well, there's multiple studies on this. It's really on the impact of investor behavior on returns, whether it's Dalbar or Morningstar studies or whatever. And it, the blame is always put on the individual investor. But if you think about it, a lot of those investors actually had a financial advisor probably helping them set up those portfolios. And instead of like focusing on a philosophy they probably focused on maybe some recent numbers and that discipline. And as you said, kind of doing the hard thing instead of the easy thing, which is the hard thing is the right thing. Maybe some of them didn't do. So I agree that some of those attributes are really, really key. Let's talk about people a little bit more, kind of change the question a little bit. So mm-hmm. obviously you've had a successful career and you're surrounded by successful people and many who helped you to get to where you are today. Who are some of the people that you're professionally thankful for and some of the mentors you've had along the way? Boy, that's a great question. I don't even know if you ask them if they were my mentor, they'd say yes, but they were. (laughs) You know, I think sometimes great mentors, they just show up and it's so easy to observe their behavior and that you just take so much from them. And they had no idea that they were a mentor to you, right? Some are great. I mean, you know, I mentor some people at Dimensional, it's a very specific deal, but others, you know, we get inspiration and insights and growth from people that don't even realize they're doing it. So two come to mind when you sent me this question. One was, I mentioned the name, a guy by the name of Dan Wheeler. Dan Wheeler, he was the advisor in Sacramento who thought there's gotta be a better way to do this for the end investor and sought dimensional out and really was, I would say the pioneer in bringing the merits of systematic investment strategies to the, at that time, the independent advisor community. 
which really, this isn't even a stretch, it laid the seeds for a transformation in the advice business and the investment business at large. The things I learned most from Dan are this infectious level of optimism that he had that had an amazingly positive impact on people around him. I can't quite put my finger on what that guy's about, but man, I want to learn more. I want to be part of it. I want to understand what he's got that he's so excited about. So passion, you know, optimism leads to passion. That passion was just, it was incredibly important for us in the early days. When we were, when I joined Dimensional, we were 20 billion under management, maybe 70 people. It was really important to have a leader that I could actually observe. And it wasn't empty optimism. You know, he wasn't a Pollyanna. He was very specific about why he was passionate about it, why these ideas work and why investors and advisors ought to pay attention. The other thing I learned from Dan was he wasn't a micromanager. Uh, he was a delegator, a truster. Once we proved ourselves, even as a really young guy in the business, I had an unbelievable amount of freedom to go and execute and do the things that I thought were important and important contributions to the advisor community. And it was because I had a very clear vision of what we were supposed to be doing that he was able to trust me and I was able to show him that I could do it. Dan was really important. I'd say the other one, and I guarantee he doesn't know that he's been a mentor to me, but a guy by the name of Mac McQuown. And he is one of the unsung heroes of the investment industry. I could trace back, and this is not a stretch, I could trace back the entire birth of the indexing revolution, the index fund revolution, to this guy, John Mac McQuown. He was the guy who ran the management sciences program at Wells Fargo, which was really the first institution that created the first index fund. He actually ended up giving the IP to John Bogle at Vanguard back in the early days. So he was, Mac was an innovator, a total disruptor, but had an insatiable appetite for learning and devouring data and coming up with, with insights and, and inferences and conclusions about what the data suggested. So he's made amazing contributions to all of our lives, and we don't even know it. Most people don't know it. The other thing I love about Mac and what I observed about him is you might think, okay, that guy is just unidirectional. Like, you know, he's got one thing and that's, that's what he does. This guy is a committed scientist. Like he's got an amazing observatory that actually universities tap into. So he's got tons of knowledge on astronomy. He has his own workshop. He has an incredible sustainable farm. So he's got the biggest private microgrid, I think one of the biggest ones in the US, residential microgrid. So he's, he's an amazing innovator when it comes to issues like sustainability. But perhaps the most important, humility. This is the most humble, thoughtful guy you'll ever meet. He always makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. So he does a really good job of connecting. Wow. That's amazing. I love this question. I love the answers on it too. Okay. Our next question, changing gears a little bit, bringing it back to you is, you know, obviously we have obligations to perform at a high level, both professionally and personally. So how do you kind of maintain your health and your wellness? And again, I'm referring to both physical and mental to ensure that you're performing at a high level. By the way, I love the fact that you use the term obligation, which I totally agree with. You know, I'm sitting at a desk in my home office and it feels like I'm alone, but I'm always aware that there are way more people than I can imagine that are actually depending on me to do a good job. Even if it's just these slight infinitesimal things that I do that compound over time or with other people's work to make a difference. So I agree. I think there is an obligation to perform at a high level, responsibility, but also a privilege. Mm -hmm. And so I've always felt, to your question, one of the things I do, and it's a daily choice for all of us, is to feel a sense of gratitude that we have an opportunity to work in a business that matters deeply. I mean, this is a, not many people can say that, that they work in an industry that matters deeply. I mean, if you think about the intersection of the most important thing in people's lives, it's our well-being, our physical well-being, our family, our work, our finances, right? So the fact that we get to work on 
squarely one of those, but it impacts all of them is amazing. So I think that sense of gratitude and privilege just helps to stay stuck in, you know, not get a sense of complacency, recognize that you always got to work harder. So that, you know, I consider myself an avid learner. And that's one of the reasons why is I want to be smarter tomorrow than I was yesterday. So mental stimulation is very, very important to me, whether it's playing, a, you know, New York Times Wordle game or reading a new book or testing myself on something. That's always a big one for me. Physical fitness has been a constant in my life, Rusty. And I can't express enough how important that has been in my life to help center me, to just clear the cobwebs. I feel like that is my place to meditate even, even if my heart rate's up, I feel relaxed when that's over. On days when I don't work out or sweat or exercise or move, those are the days I feel most stressed. I say the days I feel most tired, even though I didn't really do much. So outdoor sports is really where I come alive, so to speak. It's like ocean sports, surfing, paddling, swimming, being underwater, on the water, in the water, whatever you say. And being competitive, you know, I think being competitive has sometimes has a negative connotation, but I have a firm belief that being competitive and doing your best to win and get better every day, everyone wins. It's not about, you know, selfishness. It's getting better for something beyond yourself. And that's always kind of how we've approached things at Dimensional as well. So good. All right. On the topic of learning. So do you have any content recommendations for our listeners, books, newsletters, podcasts, anything of note? Gosh, you know, there's one that's just a goat. I always find myself going back to it. It's a great question. I always try to, I try to be really cool and find something new no one's ever heard of. But I just, I keep coming back to this one that has been incredibly impactful for me, which is James Clear. And Rusty, do you know James Clear? Yep, yep. Atomic Habits. and I've given it a few times. Yep. Yeah, just awesome. And I don't know if, if you have the 321 email that he sends. Great tip, yep. That's a fantastic email. It just, I find myself pausing every time I get that email. Those are really cool things to think about. Anytime something creates a pause in your life and some silence and introspection, there's value to that. And I just find that he does that for me. And he does it every week too, which is so amazing. Sometimes I think about how does he do it every week? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. So I've come to appreciate. And the concept of Atomic Habits has always been kind of a, a big one for me. I think it's very rare that you make these, these quantum leaps on a daily or even yearly basis and these massive discoveries. But I've just found in my life, again, commitment to small improvements every day, whether it's work or fitness or you know, learning a new recipe or an instrument or getting better at a sport. It's a joy to look back through time and see how that stuff compounds, not too dissimilar from how we think about investments. You don't have to make 10% a day or a month. That stuff, it's going to make a meaningful impact if you just let that stuff compound through time. Yeah, right on. Well, to close it out, I kind of want to bring it back to surfing if I could. I have one quick story you might appreciate. And then I have a question for you. So the first one is a couple of years ago, I actually found myself on Kauai and I do fancy myself a paddleboarder, not a surfer, but uh, I just happened to be on the part of Kauai because, you know, Laird Hamilton lives on that river. I can't remember the name of it, but if you go out that river out to the ocean, I remember I was on a paddleboard and I was looking the wrong way. And I remember I'm from Nebraska. So a big turtle comes up out of the water and staring at me and I'm like blown away. Of course, I was right where the surf was. And I remember just being totally dumped. 
I had bought some really expensive sunglasses and I spent a lot of time looking for them. I found them. So I bet you know that body of water and you could probably just see what happened there. But I figured that turtle just totally set me up. And um, <laughs> and then my question is, so my daughter actually does fancy herself to be a surfer. And she was just telling me actually today, believe it or not, that she is pondering whether she should surf over the holidays in Morocco or Costa Rica. Do you have an opinion on that? I could give her that answer. Boy. Well, number one, you were on the Hanalei River, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And the surf was out to the right of the pier over at the yep. at Hanalei, you know, over King's Reef is way outside there. Yes, that is one of the most, that is actually my favorite place in the world to surf. Oh, wow, you know, cool. Out of that break, <laughs> on the point break out there. Yep. And one of the most beautiful places to look back from the lineup up to the land there in Kauai. It's just an amazing part of the world. Yeah. So as far as Costa Rica or Morocco, I... I've never been to Morocco. I was actually in Costa Rica in June, so I have maybe a little bias on recency there. And actually, the Surf Conservation Partnership, we launched some new protected sites in Costa Rica this summer, which is why I was down there. So it's hard for me to comment on Morocco or Costa Rica. Morocco is more exotic, right? I would actually love to go surf Morocco. And I've seen the surf there. It looks amazing. I would imagine you find less crowds in Morocco maybe than Costa Rica. Yeah. But Costa Rica is a heck of a lot easier to get to, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, given that answer, I'm sure my daughter will pick Morocco then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Bryce, I really appreciate your time today. Any closing words or thoughts? You've already given us a ton of great information. I appreciate the invitation to be with you here, Rusty. And thanks to you and the team. And hopefully the listeners got something out of this. Awesome. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. Invest well and be well. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.